Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. Uh, My guests today are Matt Reeves and Shannon Nybergs. Matt is a research ecologist with the Forest Service out of Montana, and uh, Dr. Nybergs is the director for the Western Center for Risk Management Education and a livestock economist. And we we have uh, kind of some emerging news across the country the last few weeks. In places like the Northwest, we've had nearly... uh, average or above average snowpack, but below average lower elevation precipitation and drought conditions uh, seem to be uh, emerging in other parts of the country that we thought it'd be worthwhile to talk about for a little bit. Matt Reeves runs a program called FuelCast that tracks some of this uh, based on uh, satellite data. And Shannon is an economist that has some suggestions on how livestock producers might be able to respond uh, to the the current drought situation. Uh, So we're going to jump in and begin talking about the situation. Uh, Matt and Shannon, welcome. Hi, Tip. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Well, Matt, can you give uh, the 30,000-foot view of what things look like across the West right now? Yes, and... What I'll be describing, Tip, is regarding the the forage and fuel conditions to start with. And one of the headlines, I guess you could say, is starting about four weeks ago, we noted that at least 80% of the Western U.S., the forage conditions were below average. And below average doesn't sound like much, but that was a unique condition that we hadn't seen in our 40-year record of observation, plus or minus 40 years. Some things have improved slightly in the last couple of weeks due to some timely moisture and a few other things we'll talk about. But overall, uh, places like California and up in through eastern Oregon, eastern Washington have been very dry, and that has shown in the forage conditions. Likewise, the upper you know, the northern Great Plains, particularly in North Dakota, have been exceptionally dry, and that is also reflecting in forage conditions. Yeah, I think some of that probably is not going to surprise many people that have looked out their window or out the door, the pickup window. Uh, what are what are some of the metrics that you're using to measure those conditions? Well, my primary metric that I'm using for most of my work now is the change in forage conditions as as monitored and projected using the FuelCast system. And FuelCast is a computer program that runs on the Google Earth engine. And it uses weekly satellite remote sensing, daily precipitation, and daily eddy, which is a drought metric in its formulation. And it looks ahead and it starts four four months before the peak at every location in the Western US and begins to make projections every week about the expected forage conditions. And so we use that primarily to track what's happening with forage. You know, if we were just gearing to precipitation, we can sometimes get 
you know, some false impressions about what that means for forage, because depending on where we're at, rainfall is not all created equal in, in the timing and intensity and all these things. So we need, a, a, in my opinion, a computer program using machine learning or artificial intelligence to be able to unravel some of those complicated things. Just to better understand some of that, how does how does the fuel cast uh, assessment compare with, for example, the U.S. drought monitor, which more people would be familiar with? Well, the U.S. drought monitor, as you know, is derived from a lot of people looking at a variety of metrics, some of which may be related to forage, like, for example, using satellite-derived NDVI or normalized vegetation index and other things. And then it's kind of a, it's my understanding that the drought monitor is it's kind of an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different indicators. But the primary difference here would be it's kind of a generic viewpoint of drought. In other words, you know, the water storage facilities may have, say, 50% capacity, and that would indicate a drought. But that is not one-to-one -one with what we would expect with forage. So we're focused just on the forage and fuel component. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's a relationship between drought and the uh, the forage amount. But you start talking about the timing and what the drought means for cool season versus warm season species, and it gets pretty complicated. And that's why we're kind of of the opinion that allowing a computer to sort through it all can offer some advantages in some instances when we're just talking about forage. Right. What are the areas that, that seem to be uh, the worst off right now? The worst areas in terms of reductions of forage, I would say first off would be California and Eastern Oregon. Eastern Washington, I think in the last week or so has definitely, we've noticed a, a little blip to the upside. So conditions have improved slightly, but they've got a long way to come out of the hole. Yeah, and in North Dakota, these are some of the worst yield conditions we've seen in, in quite some time, but I don't believe they compare to the types of reductions that we're seeing in California. I think that's probably the number one attention-grabbing headline would be what's happened in California. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned in the in the webinar that uh, that there are a number of conditions independent uh, a number of conditions besides just uh, fuel availability and, and dryness that contribute to fire risk and one of the big ones is standing dead can you describe how that plays into the model and what those numbers look like yes standing dead is something we estimate and keep track of so the standing dead estimate we have at fuelcast.net was derived using data from 2020 because that's what came forward to this growing season, of course, all that senesced material. And our view of the standing dead is that it's just a function of what was produced last year. So if there was, say, let's just say a 1,000 pounds per acre of annual production produced last year, then there would be a certain amount of that senesced material brought forward this year. And where that really begins to influence things is when we start looking at potential fire behavior and the surface fire behavior fill model for those of you that speak that language. So we incorporate the standing dead plus whatever kind of productivity we expect this year into our fuel amounts, which has direct implications for fire behavior. 
And what would be some of the reasons for there being a lot of standing dead in particular regions? A good year last year for precipitation? Well, that's right. Well, not just not only precipitation, because as you and I have talked about, sometimes precip can fool us because if the precipitation doesn't come at the right time, or yeah. if it's too hot, or if it's you know cool season species, and yet we get precip in July, that's not going to do us a whole lot of good. Um, so yes, to for, to answer your question about the standing dead, if an area had a good year last year in terms of forage productivity, then there's the assumption is that there's a good bit of standing dead that's brought forward. That assumption isn't always true. For example, if it's uh, really matted down by a ton of snow, it may still be senesce material, but it's laying kind of horizontally. So it's a different kind of environment. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the complexity in the model to to look at that. It's laying dead instead of standing dead. Yeah. Or if there is, you know, some late fall, kind of early winter uh, grazing that may occur, then we're not tracking that very well either because we're not directly sensing the amount of standing dead. We're estimating as a function of what happened in the years past. It seems like the question, how bad is it, is partly related to what our expectations are. Uh, I think on the on your fuel cast site, you have the deviation from the 15-year mean. Uh, how much variability is in the 15-year mean for most locations? There was a farmer in Ellensburg who used to say, I've lived here for 75 years and I'm still waiting for an average one. <laughs> right. Describe that that 15-year mean a little bit. Well, it's easier to describe the mean in terms of variability that we would expect. So, just as an example, in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of, you know, on the east side, especially like in your neck of the woods there, Tip, I think most of the estimates of variability range from, depending on the site, from 19 to 40%. Mm. And so, yeah, definitely within the last 15 years, we would have a mean plus or minus whatever the variability has looked like. Um, it Certainly, your viewpoint of how this year compares to all the other years will change depending on the baseline and the same is true with climate information or, or whatever. Um, one of the things right. we've toyed with is looking at, instead of just saying that the deviation from average, which is just a mathematical thing, why not look at, you know, are we below one or two standard deviations? So using some kind of, you know, Z scoring or something like that to show anomalies. That can be done. Right. If you've had five years in the last 15 that were, you know, 40% below the mean, that would mean that having a 40% below year isn't all that unusual. But but if you're 50% below the mean, then it would be much more significant. Yes. Or 60 uh, or 70. <laughs> that's right. And in that 15-year period, we've definitely seen some cases, for example, 2018, um, you know, in northern Arizona in that Four Corners region, that was a very deep drought, deeper than what we see today on average, but not as wide. And, and there we saw, you know, some 90% reductions. And uh, there was a good bit of area, well, in excess of 70% reductions in that neck of the woods. There was a lot of drought declarations at that time, mm-hmm. you know, emergency, emergency declarations. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is in part of parts of the West where the, where there's a lot of cheat grass, a decline in spring 
precipitation and therefore invasive annual grass production could correspond to a decline in in fire risk. Is there any way to accommodate that in the in the modeling? Well, certainly it would do that. As an example, we have a general understanding of where the invasive annual grasses occur, whether it be red brome or cheatgrass or some other invasive annual herbaceous species, maybe a sesimbrium or something. Um, and if we are estimating in those areas a well below average yield, let's say you're 500 pounds per acre versus 1,500 pounds, which is maybe let's just say what you might expect, um, then the model sees that 500 pounds and assigns a surface fire behavior fuel model accordingly, knowing that number one, it's annual herbaceous material, and number two, it's a low yield, and it would be assigned a relatively benign surface fire behavior fuel model in, in those cases. Mm-hmm. We have to remember one thing, one, one, one quick thing is that, as you know, fire is a very poor botanist. So in the end, if in the summertime we have invasive annual species, but we also have something like, um, oh, let's just say Sandberg's bluegrass that was equally abundant, um, we might expect similar kinds of fire behavior, not identical, but similar. So I think the function of cheatgrass in those cases is to add to fuel bed continuity, not just yield. Right. Yeah, we definitely see that in most of eastern Washington right now. Significantly less cheatgrass, shorter cheatgrass, earlier earlier turning. But in some places, it seems the perennials are doing all right so far. It'd be nice to get a little bit of rain. Uh, to what extent does the can satellite imagery or some other form of sensor detect soil moisture, and how does that play in? Well, as you may know, NASA has a specific satellite that is used to track soil moisture, and it's one of the things we pay attention to in are reading the tea leaves monthly webcast that looks at the forage and fuel conditions. And that sensor called SMAP, S-M-A-P, SMAP, uh, provides, you know, plus or minus uh, uh, a snapshot of an estimate of soil moisture every few days. And you can view that information on the uh, crop soil moisture SMAP. If you just Google those words, see a very nice viewer there. and That is a nine-kilometer resolution product that also has a three-kilometer variant, and now with USDA Partners has a one-kilometer variant. And that's what we use primarily to look at soil moisture conditions and how that might be related to what our forage prediction system looks like. Mm -hmm. Right now, just as a a matter of of record, I'm I'm looking at uh, a graph and some data from Park Williams with UCLA showing some soil moisture information, looking at anomalies going way back. It looks like probably maybe to 1900. And it, according to this information, um, and thanks to Dan McAvoy from the Desert Research Institute for sending me this, it looks like 2021 is the driest on record for soil moisture. Huh. Overall, overall. Yeah, that's significant. I, I feel like there's talk of drought somewhere every year to the point where some people can kind of tune it out unless they see it, 
you know, very directly in front of them. Um, so I, I don't know that we've gotten uh, fully to the to the question of how bad is it. But I, I think you mentioned that you have some statistics that indicate this is something both in terms of the the depth of drought conditions and the the widespread nature of it that maybe has more significant implications. You know, a regional drought, you just buy hay from the next state over. Uh, but if all four of the next states over are in the same situation, that changes things. And I'm recalling too, back to the, I think it was 2012, when there was a pretty significant widespread drought in the South. And I, it was it was predicted. It was, it was predicted months out. And there were livestock producers that responded to that proactively uh, and and ended up being in pretty good shape. And there were some that, that did not and really got caught in a bad economic situation. You know, there there's multiple multiple layers of getting into a bad economic situation, which could include everybody else trying to dump cows at the same time if everyone feels the pinch, you know, a little bit too late. And then responds all at once, and then nobody gets paid very well for their animals. Uh, it could mean that you can't find any winter hay, and so therefore you're needing to get rid of some animals. Uh, there's a number of responses there. So, how, uh, yeah, how how fast is the sky falling, and over how many, over how much area? Well, I don't want to say that the sky is falling, and I would suggest that at least according to our information, um, you know, right now it's the, the soil moisture is, is very dry, as we said, but I do not believe that the conditions we're seeing right now rival those that we saw in the 2011-2012 the drought on the Southern Plains, as an example. So what we mm -hmm. have overall is some pretty widespread droughty conditions over about right now, 70 to 75 percent of U.S. rangelands are below below average, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, in terms of forage production. But we don't see the, the 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 drawdowns in the forage reserves that we saw, at least not in in the Southern Plains, on in the 2011 and 2012 period. It just seems to be that you know there's reductions just about everywhere, um, but they don't appear to be quite as deep as in mm -hmm. some years past. Now, locally, mm -hmm. there are exceptions, of course. I'm hearing anecdotes from my friends and colleagues in California, friends and colleagues in, in Montana and places where they're saying, no, it's it's pretty bad. It's, you know, the losses are exceeding, say, 80 to 90 percent of average. Um, but I think those tend to be kind of localized. One other thing to remember, when we're talking about drought, it's important to remember that drought is not directly you know, does not relate directly one-to-one -one with production and what the expectations of productivity might look like because you got to remember that 20% of our rangelands in the U.S. Um, are properly characterized as a bimodal systems and because of their warm season component, you know, C4, they could respond favorably if monsoons develop in these things. So it's a little bit early to call that 20%. Um, and those those tend to occur pretty low latitudes in the U.S. and particularly in the southwestern U.S. is where we think about most of the bimodal systems. So we could see some pulses later on if conditions improve there. But right now, according to our estimates, we're looking at, you know, sometime in the next five to 12 days, we'll have about 45 percent 
of U.S. rangelands that have reached their peak. So in those cases, you know, especially the cool season areas like eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, the cake's pretty well baked in terms of yield and what mm-hmm. we might expect at that time. So, you know, in another 10 days, we're going to know with pretty good certainty what, what we've got on the ground available to us in those, in those areas. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, I'm not very good at swinging back to providing some URLs, but I want to mention that the fuelcast.net is the website for Fuelcast and that you have, what is it, a weekly now, May through September, weekly webinar describing the, the conditions? Yeah, we actually started in April. That's right. We, we do the reading the tea leaves once a month. We started in April, but projections. So the fuel cast engine begins four months prior to the peak at every location. So in a lot of cases, we started January 7th, our first week in, in California and other places where you have really early peaks. So we've been monitoring conditions there for almost five months. And of course, as I said, a lot of rangelands, the cake's already baked. Cool season season has passed and what you see is what you're going to get. Right. Uh, if people want to listen to the reading the tea leaves updates, what's the best way to get to that? Because just if you just type in reading the tea leaves, you don't end up with your site. <laughs> no, no, there's about a zillion of those. You need to add the keyword like USFS or Reeves or Rocky Mountain Research Station. Any of those in conjunction with reading the tea leaves will get you there. Okay. Uh, going back, just a few more details on the current situation. If if we have significant drought conditions this year in a specific geographic region, and and that's you know back to back to back to back with several years of conditions like that, uh, how would you describe that situation being different than, for example, if it's uh, the first year of drought after having multiple years of you know near average precipitation? Well, this is a very important consideration, and it's something you would consider even if, let's say, it wasn't a drought but a fire, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a lot of cases, when we're seeing back-to-back-to-back um, reduced forage conditions, as we have seen now in the Four Corners region, you know, since 2018, things haven't been that great, and in a lot of cases, they've been very bad, back-to-back-to-back. And in those situations, I. I think that a lot of people are considering more rest for the next year. So even if conditions improve next year, some people, some managers may choose to, you know, stay at a reduced level of stocking just to allow for some recovery. I should mention, uh, Tip, we're going to have in about one week, maybe a week and a half, we're going to host a one-hour webcast on the subject of what are managers doing right now to cope with these kinds of situations. And by managers, I'm talking about in the Forest Service primarily who manage those federal grazing permits. How are they working with permittees to to reconcile these things? And what are the types of things that people are talking about and thinking about to cope with this, especially when we've had back-to-back years? So there'll be some specific ideas from managers that may, may add to what I just said. Yeah, I meant to ask you, does the Forest Service handle that kind of on a, a region by region or a local basis? Or are there specific triggers in terms of, uh, you know, reductions in expected forage availability that that trigger an automatic response within a district? 
Well, my knowledge on that, on the triggers, is pretty limited. I do know that at least in Region 3, which is primarily New Mexico and Arizona, there is some triggers related to the SPI, the uh, Standardized Precipitation Index. Mm. And when that occurs, I'm not sure exactly what the the rules are or what the type of playbook they have. Um, other than that, it's usually a case-by-case basis. Um depending on not only the forage conditions, but the type of relationship people have with their stakeholders. So there's a lot of factors that influence that decision on what to do. Right. Uh, Well, let's uh, transition to talking about how people might respond. Um, I'm a fan of making localized decisions and not just taking blanket recommendations from somebody who doesn't live in a person's neck of the woods. So I'm not going to presume to make recommendations for somebody who's living in uh, South Texas. Uh, However, you know, when there are a number of uh, possibly useful responses, management responses, uh, when conditions are are like this, and I think it's worth talking through uh, some of what those might be, you know, both in the interest of protecting ranch finances uh, in the interest of protecting the the future productivity of of a person's rangeland or pasture, in the interest of avoiding, uh, you know, having enough stack disturbances that that cause uh, a range site to cross an ecological threshold to pass this tipping point where now we've got uh, potentially a degraded but stable state a new vegetation assemblage that's not going to want to go back the other direction to what you had before. We want to avoid all of those things. And the list of possibilities for how somebody might respond uh, could be pretty long, but I think it's worth talking through some of those just to throw out some ideas for folks that maybe have not even considered how they might respond yet. Uh, You know, as a range person, one of my concerns is if you have drought pressure, um, coincident with heavy grazing and what might not ordinarily be heavy grazing but but the same stalking pressure when you have forage short conditions may turn out to be heavy grazing pressure in an area where you ordinarily would be applying light grazing pressure just by virtue of the fact that there's you know significantly less forage that and and that can cause um, passing this tipping point where we end up with with something that we don't want uh, so maybe we'll bring Shannon in now and talk about some of the uh, some of the possible responses. But first, Matt, you know what? As a as somebody who does both data and range management and really has one foot in both worlds, you know what would be your immediate thoughts as to recommendations? Well, I'm a little hesitant to recommend anything, um, but it seems to me that the one of the Easiest, well, not easiest, but one of the immediate things that comes in to, that comes to mind is think about carefully balancing the forage production with potential use, and if that means you know a reduction of the number or uh, a different type of animals, perhaps, then you might have already considered. Maybe that's what you should do. Um, I'm not as much mm-hmm. in tune with all of the the arsenal of what to do during drought is say someone like Shannon or yourself might be, 
But that's, I think, overall what most people are talking about. I know, for example, in oh, in in the uh, Dakotas, South Dakota and North Dakota, they're talking about you know reductions of authorized amounts somewhere around thirty percent, and and that's not why you know that's pretty widespread. I think that's about an average value that I've been hearing people talk about. Then in eastern Montana, I've heard some producers I've spoken with also indicate you know, selling perhaps somewhere around 30% of what they had. They didn't identify the types of animals they were selling. but So it looks like across the board, a lot of people are looking to just reduce herd size. Yeah, Shannon, maybe here's a direct question. I, I feel like I recall hearing Harlan Hughes, who was, I believe, an economist for North Dakota State University. Maybe he'd been multiple places, but for some reason, I have in my head that he was with North Dakota State. I remember him saying one time that people shouldn't be so scared of selling cows and that there's you know there's a lot of reluctance to temporarily reduce herd size that he felt like resulted in a lot of people getting into a bad economic situation and I I think at the time he was advocating in response to drought uh, selling at a time when you could get decent prices for cows instead of waiting until everybody else is trying to sell cows to get ahead of it and uh, reduce herd size. Have you heard, am I recalling correctly about Harlan Hughes, or maybe you don't know, and should people be not so scared about selling cows or not so reluctant to reduce herd size? Yeah, Harlan's a famous SAG economist, and I do believe he was at North Dakota State. And the issue now is you're already behind the eight ball because those sales have already been occurring. There's a number of reports of uh, weekly sales going to biweekly on livestock auctions to handle the volume oh, wow. of destocking that's already occurring, uh, noted in North Carolina or North Dakota. And, and elsewhere across the West. And so uh, there's a lot of that culling going on. Obviously, a lot of management strategy on how you approach that problem. And then to, s- to help producers respond to this adverse risk of increased culling in response to weather sales, there's a couple programs that have been set up already in place. And they're programs that have been defined to function anywhere in the United States so that they could have them on the books and ready to roll out in this type of situation. And directly related to the destocking decision is tax rules. So you can defer the income you received on those sales so you don't have to pay a tax on that mm. increased revenue. And those are pretty complicated programs. You'll have to en- engage your tax advisor to help you work through those because they're not uh, they're not without some risk in that you have to reinvest those monies within a certain amount of time. You defer the extra income that you received above normal culling and then in one or two years, depending on the programs you take, you have to reinvest those by purchasing animals, breeding stock. 
And so people listening to this, if you're in an area uh, where your drought impacts are less, well, if I was, if I had an opportunity, I'd be building up those heifers and they're, they're going to be worth quite a bit of money because as Matt mentioned, that's a widespread drought. And so as people look to reinvest those monies, there'll be a, a strong demand in a year and two years for those breeding animals. Yeah. Can you name again, what's the specific name of the program that people should uh, check into? Okay. Uh, that's uh, drought uh, weather related sales of livestock in the IRS code. So I don't think in this particular case, uh-huh. uh, the producers, the producers need to see the, to seek advice from their accountants. They're probably uh, working with an accountant to file their tax statements and he'll be well-versed in the IRS codes. I could give you the uh, internal revenue code numbers, but you don't really want to uh, read read on that. That's their <laughs> that's their uh, specific expertise, and just I think it's important to know that uh, you can defer the income, but you have to reinvest that income, and then you have to account for that. But there's a for yeah. a producer related action. There's definitely a producer related action to help offset those uh, drought conditions, and that's called the livestock forage program. The livestock forage program is often abbreviated as LFP, and that's administered through the Farm Service Agency on a county by county basis. And they have maps. You could you could Google those maps to see uh, the extent of the um, payment. What it deals with is that it provides up to five months of payments at a specified rate per animal, and uh, provides producers a, uh, an income source or a cash flow that allows them to help purchase. It's designed to help purchase increased hay and increased hay cost and help offset that dramatic effect of having to re to find new feed for your animals. Now, what would you say are the, are the downsides of reducing herd size? Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, you're calling those that herd that's been on your ranch and adapted to your conditions and knowing how the range uh, lays as far as water sources and getting across different areas. And so you have to take all that into account because you, when you rebuy those animals, you're going to be purchasing new animals that are outside of your herd. So biosecurity risks come into play on that, as well as just the dynamics of individual cattle performance. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned already some of the challenges of trying to reduce um, herd size in terms of being a little bit behind uh, behind the game at this point, as far as getting paid for something. Uh, do you have any? any information about what the the hay situation looks like so say somebody decides i'm going to try to write it out it's not quite so catastrophic where i'm at i feel like i've got i've been careful about grazing and have some maybe some stockpiled forage or pastures that haven't been used very heavily for several years and i think i'm going to write it out but that's also going to require maybe 
you know, 30 to 45 days longer feeding period if a person runs out of forage this fall. Uh, what's the hay situation like? Yeah, uh, replacing the, that roughage in the diet through pasture or hay is a, is a dynamic uh, market. And the hay particularly is more dynamic this year. Then, and the hay market, uh, it really stems from risk associated with exports and how the export market is a primary driver on price. And it's interesting this year uh, because it's carrying over from 2020 in the COVID year and the implications on transportation and uh, what was purchased for export and who's buying and, and who's trying to make buy. And in summary, the China has really increased their purchases of forage through 2020. If it wasn't for China's increased purchase of forages, we would have extra stocks. But China really stepped up to a record level of hay purchases from the United States. And also a dynamic on China is they have a trade dispute with Australia, which they source hay. And because of that trade dispute with Australia, they're turning attention to trying to contract more hay from the United States. And what's also a factor on that hay market is this drought in the first cutting. And if you look across the West, there's a lot of areas that are surface water irrigated, a large number of acres are groundwater irrigated, and dry land. And so you look at the drought, you see how those impacts are uh, impacting the irrigation water supply, if you're mining the groundwater, that could be a really good strategy this year to uh, produce a you know high desirable quality hay. And also with the drought, as people lay down that first cutting, you know, even in Columbia in the Columbia Basin, we have seasonal rains that really impact that first cutting quality. Mm-hmm. which then increases, if it rains on, it increased the feeder, the amount that goes to the feeder market, as opposed to if it's put up first cutting, uh, very green, that's a very desirable export quality hay. And there it'll, it'll garner that price. So the hay market's pretty tight. The storage statistics are show that the hay market's tight. The droughts showing the hay market's going to be tight in production. So trying to secure that hay source, if that's going to fit into your feeding plan, uh, hopefully you're you're able to secure that source and and tie that down soon. Yeah, and the other risk that we've mentioned before is uh, you don't if you can avoid it, you don't want to sell low and then buy high. Yeah. It's like the old joke about how to make a fortune, how to make a, a small fortune in the cattle business. Yeah. You start with a large fortune and then buy some animals. Yeah. If, you know, if sales are already going on now, destocking sales, what are cattle prices looking like, uh, say, today? Yeah. So that's real interesting. The current feeder market's a little bit soft, and it's a little bit soft because of the corn market. Because typically those cattle would not have been marketed as feeder animals till later in the year, or they would have gone to backgrounding operations to take advantage of forage. 
but since of the since the drought, those opportunities have dried up, and they're they're being forced to look at well, uh, I might have to supplement feed these animals to uh, earlier than what I thought, and with the high corn prices this year, that's impacting the current market. But if you look for the fall calving. I mean, uh, fall sales, spring calving, fall sales, those markets are holding pretty steady uh, in mm. the futures market because next year's corn crops, so far the growing conditions are been rating good. So the corn crop for next year is looking pretty good. It's holding the futures prices up. And so if you can, so now I guess your strategy that you have to look at as you mentioned, you know, you want to sell before the rush. I mentioned that now you're already probably behind the rush. So now you're looking at, well, can I come up with a strategy that allows me to sell them later in the year where the prices are being maintained? Right. Well, I think we've probably said enough at this point to keep people busy thinking and scratching pencils for a little while. Uh, just a couple of final thoughts on on tying together some of these economic implications with uh, with range pasture implications, you know, it, in response to a, a drought or even a multi-year drought, it may be a good idea to either use reduced stocking rates or or offer you know various individual pastures or in individual range units uh, a little bit of rest or a couple of years of rest. You know, one way that that might be accommodated is by not buying back uh, cows or heifers at the time that everybody else does and just uh, kind of sitting on things for a little while. I realize, you know, many people are going to need to have some cash flow, but it would be worth thinking about how that could be creatively done in a way that, that might allow some rest because it really is pretty important to avoid overusing and, and damaging particularly the, the perennial plants in in what may be, you know, healthy range going into a drought situation and not overusing those plants is pretty critical to prote protecting the future productive capacity of that range ground. Do you want to add anything to that, Matt? Nope. I think you covered it, Tip. Okay. Well, in that case, I think we'll probably stop there. Uh, thank you guys for joining us and we will put in the show notes the links to all of these different uh, programs and websites that we've mentioned and so if you haven't before be sure to look at the show notes and um, maybe we'll have an update on this a little bit further into the season Matt and Shannon thanks again you're welcome thank you Tip it was good to talk with you again thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast you can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona 
and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.